We're in the third speech of part one. Zarathustra had previously listened to the academicians of virtue, and now he's given his own speech to his interlocutors about the hinterworldly. And the reason that I broke that discussion into two parts, that one and then this one, is because on the one hand, the speech is extremely dense. It contains an awful lot, as we saw from our previous discussion. But also the speech itself can be separated into two parts. The first part, our previous discussion, Zarathustra effectively blows up everything about the hinterworldly and those who advocate for it. And it leads towards his discussion of a human psychology. And the turn in the speech effectively occurs when after blowing up all of the things pertaining to the hinterworldly and the reasons that people believe in it or turn to it out of weakness, Zarathustra then asks his interlocutors to have faith in him, to believe him, the German word there being Glauben. Now we have to understand there's absolutely some irony going on here, and I can't help but think that Nietzsche himself was smirking, and perhaps he wants his Zarathustra to be understood as smirking as well when he says, believe me, to his interlocutors, because everyone knows the vast majority of people who believe in the hinterworldly are those who believe in divine revelation. And so the vast majority of the advocates of the hinterworldly are those who can be defined by belief. And now he's just, after blowing up all those who have that kind of belief, he's turned around and said, now believe me. But this does take us back to, from the very beginning, our very serious initial question regarding what is Zarathustra? Is he a philosopher? Is he a prophet? Because a prophet traffics in these things of belief whereas a philosopher traffics in things like philosophical arguments. And keep in mind, the argument that Zarathustra has given against the hinterworldly, as I went into great detail in a previous discussion, can't really be understood as an argument. That's, that's not what's going on. And in the same way, the faith that he's asking, the belief he's asking in his interlocutors to have in him, is not going to be the same kind of belief that one would have in divine revelation. And we'll get to all of that shortly because he's going to go into detail about it. That's also going to be what relates this speech very, very closely to the next speech. It's all going to have to do with this alternative that Zarathustra is offering up to people who would otherwise believe in the hinterworldly. And that alternative, as I've been saying, is this new psychology that Zarathustra is positing as plausible. So again, he's not making any kind of philosophical argument. He's presenting it as simply an alternative while showing that what they currently have is fundamentally rooted in weakness. The additional part here, the second part in the speech, is going to provide the alternative to what they think they have that grounds their faith currently in the hinterworldly, which is to say these various philosophical arguments, all of these things are going to come back around to reason, and Zarathustra is going to writ that large with regard to our old friend Descartes and the so-called mind-body separation. Zarathustra is going to collapse that entirely here. In fact, the entire tradition of philosophy from Descartes that was trying to solve Descartes' mind-body separation problem, Zarathustra is in fact going to say it's not even a problem. The fact that you think it is a problem is because, precisely, you've put too much emphasis on this thing we call thinking or rationality, logos. So let me be a little more clear before we jump into the reading here. The two parts of the speech correspond to the following. On the one hand, there is the problem of weakness, which Zarathustra associates with anything that has to do with the hinterworldly. 
the psychology that he offers up brings things back down to man himself. In other words, brings things back down to this world. The weakness associated with the hinterworldly is done away with by refocusing upon this world. And that brings us to the second part, this part here. By bringing things back from the hinterworldly to this world, Zarathustra is going to further emphasize this psychology in not simply this world, but the body. So the radical revolution that Zarathustra is introducing with this psychology he's offering up as plausible against the hinterworldly is to abolish the hinterworldly altogether, bring man back into this world, and in particular, back into his body. Man is to return from the hinterworld to his own body, radically so. And with that, now we can jump into the reading for this discussion. Where we ended things in the last discussion was with an examination of the following line. Weariness that wants with one great leap its ultimate or its end with a death leap. A poor, unknowing weariness that no longer even wants to will. That created all gods and hinterworlds. And we spent a good bit of time on that line, and that's how we ended the last discussion. And now, this is the point at which Zarathustra, with what seems to be some irony, invites his listeners, who now he calls his brothers, to have faith in him, to believe in him. Again, the German word there is Glauben. And what he says is going to really get at why I've titled this discussion Nietzsche's Poetry of Being. Zarathustra says the following. He says, Believe me, my brothers, it was the body that despaired of the body. It probed with the fingers of a delusioned spirit on the last or the ultimate walls. And continuing, he says, Believe me, my brothers. So again, repeating that same thing about belief with urgency. Zarathustra says, It was the body that despaired of the earth. Then it heard the belly of being speaking to it. It's that phrase, the belly of being, that's so important for us now. That phrase is possibly the most famous in all of Zarathustra. It's certainly among the most famous. The reason I say that is that it's very rare for Nietzsche himself to ever use traditional words from philosophy, such as being, epistemology, aesthetics, these kinds of things. It's even more rare for Nietzsche's Zarathustra to ever mention these things. And yet here we have the reference to being itself, which is quite possibly the most definitive term for all of philosophy. But he doesn't reference being itself. He references the belly of being. And this gets to why I've titled this portion of our discussion Nietzsche's Poetry of Being. Because what happens from this point on in the speech is that poetry itself is going to come to the fore. And we can see how that's beginning to happen in these two sentences. What he said is that after the first invocation for his brothers to believe him, it was the body that despaired of the body, and it probed with its fingers of a delusion spirit on the last or the ultimate walls. And then with urgency, he repeats that same phrase, believe me, my brothers, again. And he says it was the body that despaired of the earth. And then it heard the belly of being speaking to it. So notice what has happened there in those two lines. He says, the body despaired of the body, and then it despaired of the earth. And the one thing that gets left out from that, between body and earth, is mind. So apparently, 
in despairing of the body and then also despairing of the earth, there's an emphasis placed on mind. And it's precisely then when the emphasis is placed on mind that he says, then it heard the belly of being speaking to it. So being itself has been anthropomorphized. And in fact, being has a body. And it's the very belly of that body of being that speaks to man. So it's the very hinterworldly that enters onto the horizon once man despairs of his own body, then despairs of the earth itself. Precisely at that point is when the hinterworldly comes to man in the form of a body. And it's the belly of that body that speaks to man. In other words, hunger, desiring. And Zarathustra then says, and then it wanted to break headfirst through the last or the ultimate walls, and not only with its head, beyond to the other world. And now we have the other world there in quotation marks, because as we've already heard in this very speech, there is no such thing as the other world. So the hinterworldly comes onto the horizon once one despairs of the body, once one despairs of the earth. So from the emphasis upon mind, one now wants to use the part of the body in which the mind is housed as a very battering ram to break through that last wall, to get to the hinterworldly. So there's a desperation on man's part to not just recognize the hinterworldly, but to break through and gain access to it. That's definitive of the weakness that I spent so much time emphasizing in our previous discussion of this speech that Zarathustra associates with the hinterworldly. And I think that really also speaks to the way in which the hinterworldly is the poppy that was mentioned previously of the education in the last man. When the academicians emphasized the role of the poppy, which seemed to be an indication of that account in Homer's Odyssey, and so just like Odysseus's men who want so desperately just to have more of the poppy and forget everything about their homecoming, man himself, under the delusion of the hinterworldly, wants so badly to just have more and more of the hinterworldly. So the hinterworldly is the poppy. And Zarathustra immediately says, but the other world, again in quotation marks, is well hidden from humans. That dehumaned, inhuman world that is a heavenly nothing, and the belly of being does not speak at all to humans unless as a human. And so all of this points towards the poets. The poets are the ones who are so good at speaking of the hinterworldly because they're speaking about that which man desires, the poppy of the hinterworldly. And that this seems to be the case will be shown in what follows because now Zarathustra is going to start speaking about the poetizing that man does concerning the hinterworldly. And he's going to bring to bear, as a kind of antidote to this, the psychology that he was hinting at and providing a brief description of in the first part of the speech. And so now it's going to arise again within this speech. The psychology concerning the weakness of man that Zarathustra offered up as the alternative to the hinterworldly again returns as the antidote to the hinterworldly. And so continuing in this very rare occurrence of Zarathustra speaking of a deeply metaphysical concept of being itself, Zarathustra says the following. He says, Indeed, all being is hard to prove and hard to coax to speech. 
He says, tell me, my brothers, is not the strangest of all things still proven best? Now, just as a sidebar right there, the German word being used for strangest in this translation is also the word for wonder. So another way that we could say that is what Zarathustra has just said is, tell me, my brothers, is not the most wondrous of all things still proven best? Now, Nietzsche, of course, knows that in Plato's dialogue, the Theotetus, Socrates himself says that all philosophy begins in wonder. This, of course, is also going to be said in Aristotle as well. So Nietzsche knows very, very well that by saying is not the most wondrous of all things still proven best, that what he in fact is saying is that the source of philosophy is that which is proven best. So what's happened in these two sentences is that there has been a radical turn. So let's look at that again very carefully. He says, indeed, all being is hard to prove and hard to bring to speech. And then here's the turn. He says, tell me, my brothers, is not the strangest or the most wondrous of all things still proven best? So it's not being, in other words, it's not the traditional understanding of philosophy in terms of metaphysics or the inquiry into being, because he's just told us that that's the hardest thing. And now what he said is that that which is proven best, and it should be the most wondrous thing for all of us to realize, is something that he's about to tell us. And this is going to be the entry, as I had previously mentioned, of the psychology which Zarathustra is introducing as the antidote to the weakness of the advocates of the hinterworldly. It's the psychology that brings forth the hinterworldly. And Zarathustra's claim is going to be that it could just as well, and in fact much better, bring forth something far more important and life-affirming by way of strength instead of turning to the hinterworldly by way of weakness. And here I need to emphasize again, Zarathustra has not mentioned in any way the overman. The overman was the failure of the very first speech. What he's had to do in this new beginning, marked officially by the speeches of Zarathustra beginning with 1-1 outside of the prologue, is build his way up slowly to find the kinds of people who are going to be receptive to this teaching of the overman. That's the whole purpose of the rhetoric going on. That's why he's been unable to flatly show all of his teaching. That's why way back in 1-1, in the Metamorphoses of the Spirit, the overman would have been greatly disruptive of that transformation of the Spirit. And so he was never mentioned. And now here we are in his first speech about these things, building up to the overman. And the way that he builds up to the overman is he has to get rid of, he has to explode all things pertaining to the hinterworldly. And so the psychology that he has introduced is the precondition for his movement towards the overman with his interlocutors. And that's going to lead us directly into a discussion of poetry that I had mentioned previously. The psychology from which the hinterworldly derives is also going to be the psychology from which the overman derives. And in both of these things, poetry is absolutely fundamental. 
And so returning to that initial question that we looked at from the very first scene of the text when Zarathustra comes down from the mountain, is he a prophet? Is he a philosopher? We don't know, but it's going to turn out that we're going to absolutely have to reconsider both of these concepts in terms of poetry, precisely because, and this is to reveal a little bit later on, what Zarathustra is going to say is that he himself is a poet. Now the problem though, and we've seen this with regard to the hinterworldly, is he's going to say that the poets lie too much. And so Zarathustra's solution to the lying poets is the truth-telling poets. And that's why he's about to mention, in the context of poetry, the newest virtue, which is honesty. And so continuing, Zarathustra is now going to tell us what this most wondrous thing is that's proven best that is not the traditional concept of being from philosophy or metaphysics. Continuing, he says, Yes, this I and the I's contradiction and confusion still speak most honestly about its being, this creating, willing, valuing I, which is the measure and value of things. And this most honest being, this I, it speaks of love, and it still wants the body, even when it poetizes and fantasizes and flutters with broken wings. Okay, so a lot has been said there, but also, and most especially, that word poetizing. Dichten is the German verb there. He's going to mention it again. And this element of poetry is everything. But going back to the beginning of what was said, it's not the inquiry into being that has traditionally defined philosophy that's anything for Zarathustra. No, in fact, what it is, is this being ourselves, what we refer to as I. It is a being, and that's the only important being that matters to Zarathustra. And he tells us precisely why it's so important, because as he says, it creates, it wills, it produces values. It's the measure and value of all things. And it's precisely when it's doing these things, creating, willing, valuing, measuring, that's when it's being most honest. And in relation to the previous part of the speech concerning the hinterworldly, it was creating the hinterworldly, but it wasn't being honest about it because it didn't recognize that creating as creating. But Zarathustra's psychology, which radically reunites mind and body together, does recognize the hinterworldly as a creation, in fact, of the desires of the body, the body that has fundamentally despaired of itself. And so very much like the previous chapter with the academicians, the problem with the hinterworldly is that it doesn't recognize its own despairing and sense of meaningless to this world. It looks to a beyond. And Zarathustra's psychology is such that there is no beyond. All of these things are created from the here and now. Because as he says, even when one speaks of love, this I, when I say I love, and in particular with regard to the hinterworldly or gods, otherworldly gods, what Zarathustra is saying is that even when it says that, it wants the body. And so this thing we call poetry is the highest form of the characteristics that Zarathustra has just listed that define the most obvious of all beings, which is the I, creating. 
willing, valuing, asserting itself as the measure and value of all things. And previously, that had all been directed towards the hinterworldly. What Zarathustra is going to do is now bring all of that back down to this worldly. And so it's going to be an honest poetry of the things of this world in full consciousness and awareness of the primacy of the body. And continuing what he says is the following. It learns to speak ever more honestly, this I. And the more it learns, the more it finds words and honors for the body and the earth. And as I've been saying, keep in mind, what's the meaning of the earth that we all know, which Zarathustra has not revealed yet to his new interlocutors? It's the overman. And in fact, he's going to hint at that right now. He says, my eye, it taught me a new pride. I teach it to mankind. No longer bury your head in the sand of heavenly things, but bear it freely instead, an earthly head that creates a meaning for the earth. So again, he doesn't name the overman, but he's certainly moving in that direction. He says, I teach mankind a new will to want the path that human beings have traveled blindly, to pronounce it good and no longer sneak to the side of it like the sick and the dying out. So we have two things there. Zarathustra introduces a new pride, and he says he teaches that. That new pride is the meaning of the earth, not seeking refuge in anything beyond the earth, anything hinterworldly. Now, we know that that new pride is going to be the overman, but he's not mentioning that so far. He still has to find out which of his interlocutors are willing to go down that road with him. And he also has a new will. And the new will is to want the path that human beings have traveled blindly. Now, what he's saying here is that history itself has been mere chance, no teleology, no purposiveness. All these hinterworldly things which have guided man prior to Zarathustra, they don't even exist. And so he has to teach a new will towards an end, a new will towards a goal, a new telos. So the previous poetry of all being was for the hinterworldly. And what he's just told us there is that it was for the sick and the dying out. And he's going to introduce a new poetry of being. But before he does that, he's going to give us a little bit more information about the previous poetry of being, the psychology that motivated that poetry of being. Because unless and until one properly understands the psychology that motivated the poetry of the being of the hinterworldly, one will always be at risk of slipping back into that. And so Zarathustra has to give his interlocutors more information about the psychology of the hinterworldly at the core of all poetry as they presently understand it in order that they can properly implement the poetry of being going forward. Or to phrase this in terms of what Zarathustra has just told them, the psychological elements of the new pride and the new will that constitute the poetry of being going forward have to be cultivated in his listeners. It's not enough that he simply tell them what his new pride is and what his new will is. That has to absolutely be cultivated within his listeners. And the way that he has to cultivate that is he has to make sure that he thoroughly uproots all of the psychological elements that previously constituted the hinterworldly, the elements of the weakness of their psyche. And that's going to be a radical confrontation with honesty. 
And so continuing, what Zarathustra says is the following. 